in Genesis chapter 3, something terrible happens. Yes, that's the chapter in the Bible where the fall of man is described, but it's also the chapter that describes a consequence of the fall of man. It tells us that after this sin of disobedience, Adam and Eve are removed from the garden because of the fall. They're now forced to live in the aftermath of God's judgment outside of his presence. So in Genesis 3, 23 through 24, the Bible tells us that God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden and then places guardian angels, angels with flaming swords at the front of the garden to prevent their return. And as the Bible tells us about this act, this consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, it It calls us to view this separation between God, his presence, and these people that he created as an enormous loss. Something that we should grieve over as the people of God, knowing we were created to live in and enjoy the presence of God. But now, because of our sin, we are unable to. See, it's not just a loss of paradise that we should grieve. It's the loss of this fellowship that, that we desire to have with God. They lost the blessing of his continued uninterrupted presence. And yet, even as God sent man outside of the garden, even as he he allowed them to feel the consequence of their rebellion, he also did not stop pursuing them. See, the Bible offers us hope in the midst of our grief that God had already established a plan through which a return would be possible. A return to a a new garden, a return to this uninterrupted presence and fellowship of God through which all of his glorious purposes in creation would be revealed. And this plan unfolds throughout every page of the Bible, and we describe it as the gospel. And sometimes you read a text in the pages of Scripture, and elements of this larger work, elements of this gospel plan just jump off the page of you in vibrant ways. And for me this morning, the text that we're going to be reading in Malachi chapter 3 is one of those kind of texts, where even in the Old Testament, The promises of God, the blessing of God, the purposes of God are revealed in ways that captivate our hearts. And so this morning, as we continue in our study of the book of Malachi, this morning as we are in the midst of the Advent season, this morning as we are anticipating a wonderful Christmas together, I want us to remember the goodness of God's gospel. It's a message we hear often. It's a message I hope that you hear every week when you gather at Bayleaf Baptist Church, but I hope it's a message we do not grow tired of hearing because of what it tells us about this God that we serve, about this God that has saved us. It's presented from the Old Testament, but it is the the hope and the promise of Christ that we cling to on a daily basis. Would you hear this morning the call of God for sinful people to return? And would you hear this morning the declaration of what makes such a return promise? A possible, a promise that we hold to, the cornerstone of our hope as the people of God. Here's the overarching message I want us to take away from our passage this morning in Malachi 3. Our unchanging God 
has called us to return to him and experience the blessing of his presence once again through the work of Christ. Is there better news to declare church family this Christmas season than that? That our unchanging God has called us rebellious people to return to him and once again experience the blessing of his presence through the work and the gift of Christ. Let's look at Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, and we'll read all the way down to verse 15. Here's what the word of God says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, and you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed God? And your tithes and your contributions, you're cursed with a curse. For you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. So bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This morning, as we dive into this text in the book of Malachi, I want us to look at five gospel realities that are present, but I hope stir in us and affection for the Lord, encourage us to delight more in the gospel. And I think they actually add to the dimension of delight we can take in the gospel because they are found in the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons I love preaching the Old Testament is because how we can see the wisdom of God clearly displayed as he drives our heart, even in the Old Covenant, toward the the promise of Jesus. And so let's look at these promises, gospel realities, even in the Old Testament, to stir our hearts for longing, in longing for the work of Christ, the, the significance, help us to see the significance of his first coming, even as we anticipate his second in this Advent season. Okay, the first gospel reality I want us to take note of is found in verse six. And it has to do with the nature of God. Here's what God declares through Malachi, his messenger over his people. I do not change. The first gospel reality that we need to hold to, realize, cling to, celebrate this morning, church family, is that the Lord does not change. This is so good. This is very good. We need to wrap our minds around how good it is that our God is constant He does not change. This this reality, what theologians call the immutability of God, is a doctrinal cornerstone for us. It is so significant. Now, the people of God at this time are accusing God of changing, as we've seen over the past several weeks. They're saying, God, your love for us has changed. 
Your, your faithfulness to your covenant promises, that's changed. The way that you distribute justice, that has changed. They're accusing him of all of these things, these, these ways that he's changed as a, as a way for them to kind of deal with or help them understand the difficult circumstances that they find themselves in. But little did they realize the only hope they have as a people is if God has not changed. They're trying to, to give explanation to their circumstance by saying that God has changed. But if they, if they are looking to him for help, the only thing they have to cling to is that their God is the same yesterday and today and will be in the future as he has always been. Their existence as a people, their existence as a nation rely on the fact that God remains committed to his loving choice of them. Otherwise, God says, they would be removed consumed by his judgment because of their disobedience. Hear me this morning, church family. The witness of scripture testifies to us that while everything around us may change, our God remains the same. He will never change. Listen to this, this declaration from the book of Psalms, Psalm 102, verses 25 to 28. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you, O oh God, are the same. Your years have no end. The children of your servants, listen to this, because God is the same, because he will never change, the children of your servants can and shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Here's how the great theologian Herman Bavick speaks of God's constancy and why it should matter to us. God is who he has always been. He will be who he is. He is uncorruptible and immortal. His thought and his will, his plans and decisions are perfect such that he never lies. He has no need to repent. His gifts and calling are irrevocable. He does not reject his people. Rather, he completes what he began. Aren't you grateful? What he promises he will do because he is always, always, always faithful to his word. This is who our God is. And this is who our God must be for us to have hope and faith in him. The people don't realize the full implications of their accusation against God. What they, are, what they are charging God with. If God has changed, then what hope do they have? If God is not, nor does, does he love them, what future do they have? Because precisely God has not changed. Because he has chosen them. Because he has called them. Because he had made promises to, him, to them. There remains a remnant of hope. And so it is with us church family. Our gospel hope rests in the truth that God does not change. That if we are in Christ, if we are saved from a future of judgment and wrath, it is because God has chosen us. He has loved us. He has saved us. And nothing, nothing, nothing can change that. Hear the testimony of Paul from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 29 to 30 and then jump down a little bit. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. And then later, here's, the Paul's, here's Paul's testimony that he declares over the Roman people because of the security that we have in God's calling of us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, any circumstance as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, hear this church, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. Praise be to God. And the security we have in that is if God began a good work in us by calling us to himself, he will see it through. He will see it through. You may mess up. You may prove yourself to be unfaithful. You may turn away for a season or a moment, but God's gaze has not changed. His work will be completed in you for his glory if he has called you to himself. What a glorious thing to celebrate, church. He's called us from death into life. He's called us to himself in Christ. And that calling is irrevocable. Because God does not change. Now, why do we need this confidence? Why do we need this confidence in the unchanging nature of God? Well, that leads us to our second point this morning. The unchanging nature of the Lord is so important to us because we need to change. We need to change in order to get back into his presence. And yet, the Lord's people have not changed as we see in verses 6 to 7 and then 13 to 15. In order for the people of God to enjoy his blessing again, there were some things in their life, in their heart, that needed to change. It seems like the return to the land of promise had not led to a true return to the Lord. That their hearts were still far from the Lord, even though they were back in the land of promise. And this shows up in the way that God speaks to his people through Malachi. Notice something in verse 6 God calls his people the children of Jacob. This is an important designation, an important designation. He did not call them the children of Israel. He calls them the children of Jacob. Now, Israel is the covenant name that God gave to Jacob, the father of Israel. And yet he is doing something intentional here by calling them not the children of Israel, but the children of Jacob. It's like, you know, when your kids are acting a fool, I don't know, do your kids do that sometimes, right? And you're like, I have no idea whose kid that is. That's your kid, not my kid, right? That's kind of what God's saying here. Y'all are acting like y'all are not my children. Y'all are acting like your children outside of the covenant promises of God. You're not acting like your children inside the promises of God. And, and what we're also reminded of here in Malachi 3 is that this happens all the time in the story of scripture. This is not the first time God's people have wandered away from him. 
It's been true of the entire covenant relationship. What God says in verse six, every generation, it seems, has turned aside from God, from his statutes. They've not kept the righteous requirement of the law. They've not evidenced repentance, true repentance and engaging the sacrificial system that God had provided for them. And yet they have the nerve to question the goodness of God. They have the nerve later in our our chapter to ask what benefit is it? Verse 14, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord? And their mind, all they're doing around is, is looking around and seeing that evildoers prosper, that they escape the justice of God. They, they put God to the test and yet they get blessing. What's the benefit for us? And yet despite their hard-heartedness, in spite of the fact that they don't see the enormous blessing that God has, has given to them just by being present among them, in spite of the record of faithfulness that God has displayed for them and their, their accusations of unfaithfulness, I want you to see the mercy and grace of God that he gives them yet another opportunity to change. God has not changed. That's the first gospel reality. God's people needed to change. It's the second gospel reality. But third, hear the grace of God that he's given them immense opportunities to change and yet he gives them an opportunity to change yet Again, that's the third gospel reality. He calls them to change. He calls them to return. He calls them to repentance yet again. And I just want us to not miss the goodness of God here, the loving kindness of God, that he continues to withhold judgments and offer opportunities for us to come in repentance before him. So as we saw last week, as many people as possible can come to a saving faith in Christ and be rescued from that future of judgment. Hear me today. Would you hear this declaration of God? And if you've, if you've followed in it, oh, I want your heart to rejoice. If you've never followed in it, I want you to respond this morning with faith that can only come from above. This is the invitation of our God. Return to me. Return to me, and I will return to you. Mankind, you've been running. Since the garden, get kicked out of my presence, you've been running, but don't you feel in the core of who you are? Don't you feel in your heart that I created you to worship me, to know me in my fullness, and to, to feel the joy that can only come from the fullness of who I am and respond and expressing that joy and worship. Don't you feel that? And yet you know that without my help, you cannot return, but hear the invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I'm a good God who desires and wants you to return. Will you return? This same God who walked with Adam in the garden is calling us, the sons of Adam, the sons of disobedience, to step back into his covenant promises to step back into his presence. This people, they needed to identify with Israel rather than Jacob to remember why they were formed in the first place. To remember that God had purpose for them, but more than that, blessing. And the purpose was fulfilled in the blessing. 
so that nations would look at them and they would see the blessing of God being poured out upon them and they would be drawn to this one true God as well. And God was offering them a chance to return. It's incredible grace. But here's what's so sad about the state of this people right here in Malachi 3. They don't even, they don't even sense the grace of God in offering the invitation because they don't realize how far away they are from God. They ask a question of him when he, when he offers this incredible, merciful, gracious retur- invitation to return. They ask a question that's almost laughable. How? How, how can we return? And in the, the language of the Old Testament here, it's as if they're saying, God, we're not the one who's left. You are. You changed. So, so how can we return to you if we've never left? And so God does something really Again, even more gracious and merciful, he gives them tangible evidence of how far away they are from him so that they can get a true understanding, true gauge about where they stand before the Lord. And then he calls them to evidence their return and the way that they overcome this, this action, the way they overcome this This evidence of separation between a holy and righteous God. Look at verses seven to nine. God has given us actions that help us understand his grace, that can function as spiritual lessons, physical actions that help give us a spiritual diagnosis. There are many things that, many disciplines in the the life of the church, many disciplines in the life of the Christian where this is true, but the one in particular that God draws out here is the discipline of giving. And here's what God says to his people. Here's an indicator of how far off you are from me. You're asking the question, God, how can we return to you and we're the ones who've never left? I wanna show you clearly, based on your actions against my word, how far you are away from me. Now, these these should be actions that evidence your spiritual commitment to me, but now they're actually actions that evidence your spiritual waywardness. And so I'm I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna give you evidence of how far off you are away from me, but also an opportunity for you to come back to evidence your heart and desire to return by setting this right through giving. So hear me, you are living in disobedience. You're not giving your tithes and your offerings. You're not caring for my house. You're not caring for my temple. You're not caring for the priests who minister in my temple. And you're not caring for the more needy among you. And you know in my word, I've I've clearly articulated my expectations here. And we've unfolded these even as a church over the last several weeks through our Multiply initiative. The people of God have always been expected to give a portion of what they earn to the Lord. And this goes back before the law. Cain offered an offering of the firstborn of his flocks to the Lord in Genesis 4 that brought him favor from God. And so we learn there, even in Genesis 4, right after the fall, that that we are to give our first and our best to the Lord. And the the Lord blesses those who give their first and their best. In Genesis 14, 20, we see the idea of offering a tenth of our goods established as an act of gratitude and worship to the Lord. And then these pre-law actions are then codified in the law 
wherein the people of God are expected to give a tenth to the house of the Lord in Leviticus 27 and Numbers 18 for its upkeep, its maintenance, and the action of worship, and even sometimes beyond that for the needs of the people around them. And yet, in spite of the clear articulation in God's word about how they are to serve the Lord, how they are to honor him in their giving because of their circumstances, because of the heavy taxation the people of God are feeling right now from, from Persia, who's using them to, to fuel the wars that they're fighting, because of the, the famine that they're experiencing, the hardship, the difficulty putting food on the table, they withhold what's rightfully the Lord's. They revealed that they did not trust God to provide for them, that he did not love them enough to care for them. And so they don't provide what God expects to care for his house, the place of his presence, the one place where his presence would dwell among them. They, they, they mock the Lord. And they say things like this, well, God, if you're not going to bless us, if you're not going to give to us, then we're not going to give to you. So it creates this difficult circumstance in which they sit now under God's judgment instead of his blessing. And yet God calls them to repent. And God calls them to step back into faithfulness. And he also gives them a promise. Here's what's incredible. If they do this, God says, if you return to me, if you return to me and you evidence that return in the way that you give, I will pour unparalleled blessing upon you. Verses, verses 10 to 12. That's the fifth gospel reality. That our God, when we return to him and he returns to us, will pour out unparalleled blessing upon his people. Here's what it profits you. You're asking the question, what does it profit? Seems like evildoers are putting you to the test and yet they're the ones getting blessed. What does it profit? Here's what God says. I will open the windows of heaven and I will pour down blessing upon you until there is no more need. I will remove the locusts. I will remove the other pests that destroy your crops. I will remove the devourer and you will be blessed in such a way. You will be blessed so incredibly that the nations around you will look at you and call you blessed. Don't, don't use your circumstance as a justification to withhold what's rightfully mine. Rather, trust. Trust. Step into obedience. Step into faithfulness and receive the blessing. Now, the blessing that God mentions here has kind of a, a double-sided promise to it. An there's an immediate implication that God wants to speak over his people and also a future one. Yes, it is true that God is speaking about material blessing here in part. That if the people of God walked in obedience, if they returned in repentance, they would experience a noticeable blessing of his favor. God would send actual rain upon their land. He would actually remove pestilence and their crops so they could flourish and this is good and needed because God wants to show his people that he cares for our physical needs. And that we could trust in God to provide for our physical needs. But there's also a greater blessing here that he has in mind. 
a greater blessing and promise. He's building here anticipation for the coming of Christ. Because you see, the greatest fruit that will come from Israel, the greatest seed of Israel is the person, Jesus, who will actually unleash the blessing of heaven by bringing heaven to earth. He will rebuke the greater devourer such that we can actually step into the full blessing of God yet again. And through Christ, because of Christ, he will be the ultimate blessing, the ultimate reason why all nations will look at the people of God and call them blessed. How incredible that hundreds of years before Jesus came, we're getting a foretaste of the gospel and the promise of God. Now here's the question for us. What do we do with this message that we've heard? What do we do with this kind of proto-gospel that we hear from even Malachi chapter three this morning? Let me just offer four appropriate responses, I think, this morning, church, to the message that God has given to his people then and now through the prophet Malachi. Firstly, can we just celebrate the unchanging nature of God this morning? I know sometimes theological statements, big doctrinal truths can, can escape our hearts. It's something that we we hear and we know that we should believe, but we kind of struggle to figure out how it should hit and sit in our hearts. And I just don't want that to happen this morning. I, I want us to celebrate the truth that our God does not change. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In a world where people change, when we let each other down, when, when we make promises and forget them, I don't know how many times Jude will say, but dad, didn't you say, didn't you promise? And I forgot all about the promise that I made. That's not true with our heavenly father. It's not true with God. And so hear me this morning. If people have let you down, if your circumstances have come to a point where you begin to question the goodness of God, would you just hear this morning that the same God who was faithful to his people in the pages of scripture is the same God who will be faithful to you in Christ. How else, why else would we sit before the word? Why else would we sit here and read these stories of, of the revelation of God to us and find hope in them if it wasn't the case that God is the same? How could we read the stories of of God's faithfulness to his people in the, the story of the Exodus or in the, the times of exile and find any hope in them if God was not the same then as he is today. We could, we could think, well, maybe that's who God was to his people then, but maybe he's not that same way to us now. No, he's, he's the same. And so if there's a promise in this scripture of who God is and what he has promised to his people, you can rest in that. You can cling to that. You can find hope in that. And even more so because of the further revelation that we have gotten as the people of God on this side of Christ. Let's celebrate the fact that God is who he says he is. And listen, if you are in Christ, that he will bring your salvation, the work that he has begun in you, that you expressed and articulated in repentance and belief, he will bring it to completion. He will bring you home and you will be with him for all of eternity in heaven.
That is a, a wonderful thing to celebrate and to trust in because we can trust in the person and work of God. Let's celebrate the fact that God has not changed. Secondly, let's rest in his gospel. This is the promise of the, of the Christmas season. And this is what I, I want us to celebrate in Advent. This pursuit of God, of his people, and this calling to return. It's the story of scripture, friends. That, that we disobeyed, we rebelled. And even though we were separated because of our sin, God pursued us in Christ And he's offered an invitation for anyone who repents and believes to return. So can I just ask you this morning, have you returned? Are, are you enjoying the presence of God in Christ? Have you repented of your sins, turned from your ways of disobedience back to the Father through the work of Jesus? There's no greater Christmas gift than you can receive than what God has provided for us in Jesus. And so if, you, if you've never had a moment in your life when you have heard the call of God to return and repented of your sins, would today be the day of your salvation? Because God would love to welcome you back into his presence through the work of Christ. In just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front who would love to encourage you and pray with you this morning if you need that. There's no greater way to celebrate Christmas than that. And if you are in Christ, oh, would you celebrate the grace and mercy of God that even though, even though our hearts were hardened, even though we were overwhelmed and overcome by sin, God spoke, God spoke into the distance. He spoke into our lives and called us back to himself. What a good God we serve. Thirdly, let's ask God to use our giving as a spiritual gauge. This is one of the great benefits, I think, of this passage for us as the people of God. Is again, God has given us actions and disciplines in our life that help us see how we're doing in our walk with the Lord. Because friends, listen, the people of God in this text, they didn't realize how far off from God they were. That's a sobering thing to think about. That you can be engaged in spiritual activity. You can go to church. You can surround yourself with Christian friends. You can put your kids in, in Christian schools. And yet... All of that religious activity doesn't mean necessarily that you are in alignment with God. And so God gives us some, some ways to, to think about how, how we're doing. And certainly there are spiritual things. There's also physical things. There's evidences of how we're walking with the Lord. And giving is one of those things. As we saw in our, our Multiply series, our hearts and our wallets are deeply connected. That's from the words of Jesus, right? Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I want us to think about what our giving says about our relationship to the Lord, because that's what this text says. God says, it's a, it's a clear indicator. It's a, it's a grace, actually, 
of me to be able to say, to help you see how you are committed to the things of God. And hear me, I know circumstances can be challenging. That's, that's what happened here in our passage. The people of God were experiencing difficult circumstances, high taxation. They didn't get their crops in like they hoped to. But God wants us to give our first and our best in any circumstance. Our first and our best. And I'm so grateful that I had parents who instilled in this, this, this truth in me from a very young age. They said to, I, remember, I remember having conversations with my parents saying, Jared, early on in our life, we committed to give first, our first and our best to the Lord. And even in difficult times, even in seasons of hardship, we never want it because God has always shown himself faithful. And I, I long for that for us as the people of God. I long for us to be able to experience the blessing of walking in obedience and to have this assurance, this, this clear assurance by what our bank account looks like that we are in alignment with the people of God. And so here's, here's our commitment as a people to giving that we think the Bible teaches we're, we're called to give always a portion, sometimes a sacrifice. Always a portion, sometimes a sacrifice. And God promises us there's blessing attached to walking in this kind of obedience. That God will care for us as his people when we walk in this kind of obedience. And I want you to hear me. Jordan and I are committed to this. Your pastors here are committed to this. We're gonna give first to the Lord. And I just believe as a people, when we give first to the Lord, we will experience the blessing of God because that means we're gonna be in alignment with God's blessing or alignment with God's purposes. And when we're in alignment with God's purposes, he will give us, he will bring about in our lives blessing. So how does that look for you? Are you in alignment? Are you actively giving through the church to the things of God, being generous, walking in obedience corporately, so that we can receive the ultimate blessing of God. And finally, let's long for that day when Christ will return and unleash the full blessings of God and his people. Because even though there is certainly a, a physical material component to the blessing that God is offering here, there's a greater blessing that God is directing our attention to that we will not experience the full weight of God's blessing and glory until we step into that reality that Christ is even now preparing for us. Because God does not want to, to bless us in such a way. He doesn't want to give us material blessing in such a way that it dampens our hope for heaven. It's always a, a fine line we have to walk, right? Like We don't want to get so comfortable here that we remember that we were made for a, another place. And so God wants to direct our longings ultimately to the greater blessing that he will pour out upon us in this second advent when Christ's return. So that we can constantly, before the Lord, make sure that we are ready for that return. Because God promised it, it is going to happen. He will bring his plan to completion. And the only way, as we saw last week, that we'll be able to stand on that day when Christ returns is if we are in Christ, receiving the grace and the benefit of his first to be ready for his second. So friends, God has graciously called us to return. He's graciously provided for us a way to return. Have you repented and believed in him? Are you evidencing a life 
that is committed to him. That's the call of the gospel. As we await that day when Jesus will come and take us home. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond to the preached word this morning. Can you celebrate today the fact that God does not change? That he is the same God? That his promises are yes and amen? Have you heard the call to return and returned? Are you experiencing the blessing and favor of God and his presence through the work of Christ? Are you walking in faithfulness? Because of that work of Christ in your life. Maybe giving is a a good gauge for you today. Does the way that you use your money and your resources reflect a heart that has been transformed by the gospel? Would you ask God to help you know how to follow him more faithfully there? And would you let Ask God to help direct your heart toward that second coming of Christ when the greatest blessing of God will be poured out among his people. We'll get to experience a new heaven and a new earth basking in the glory of Christ forever. Father, would you help us respond in a way that brings you glory and helps us walk in greater faithfulness, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.